Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MTB Podcast, episode 92, presented and hosted by Worldwide Cyclery. I am Jeff, joined by... I'm Jared. And Liam. And... Adam with Revel Bikes. So we have Adam Miller, the founder of Revel Bikes, with us today, and we're going to ask him all things about the bike industry, bicycle manufacturing, and really just make him answer hard questions, questions that you can't just find the answers to simply using the Google machine. Are you prepared for this, Adam? I guess. Let's go. <laughs> all right. Liam, Jared, are you ready? Ready. Ready. All right. Ready. DJ Green Goblin, play a sound effect. So, Adam... You're the founder of Revel Bikes. When was Revel Bikes created? Well, let's see. We, we launched the brand in March of 2019, but we started working on it many years before that. It took quite a while to come up with our first two models. Uh, at the time, we were making titanium bikes under the Y-Cycles brand name, which we're still doing, um, and it's going very well. Uh, but we were selling some titanium bikes. We were building carbon bikes, uh, prototyping, testing. It was a very interesting three years. So really, I think I started in 2015. I started working on Revel um, and then launched in 2019. And here we are now about just over three years later. Yeah, nice. It's surprising to think how young the Revel brand is because it seems like it's actually gotten really big really fast and become so well-known in a short short term. Which I'm amazed. It's super exciting for us. We actually just celebrated our third birthday party at the Sedona Bike Fest last nice. last weekend, and we had we had a live band and a cake and all that fun stuff for nice. the, the third birthday of Rebel Bikes. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And so before that, I, I remember making that sort of initial video about Rebel Bikes on YouTube and talking about all the various people in the bike industry that you know, helped Revel become a thing. And it wasn't it wasn't just, uh, you know, a handful of random guys that are like, let's start a bike company. But you yourself had had, you know, you already had Y-Cycles and you'd had another company prior to that, right? Borealis? Correct, yep. Yeah. So, and then there was another partner, like partners involved that were former engineers and there was a whole bunch of talented people that knew what they were doing sort of behind the brand. It wasn't, it was not a quote unquote startup with no talent. It was a, it was a startup <laughs> with a stacked roster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to, I mean, I've, I've been like a total bike geek since I was, I think 11 years old and super obsessed with bikes and had a, had a bike company. I had an eBay business when I was a kid in high school, uh, selling bike parts. Uh, but I kind of, by the time I was ready to start Revel, I sort of realized what I, what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. And I tried to find people to fill fill the roles of all that stuff I wasn't good at. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, a lot of engineering and carbon expertise. Um, a lot of people that helped me with Asian manufacturing connections and business stuff. I mean, I, I didn't have an MBA or anything like that. So we, I tried to piece together a lot of friends and connections in the industry to help me start this brand. And, and it, we launched and it went, it, I mean, we were all amazed when we launched. We sold out of all of our bikes in like three days and we thought they were going to be, it was going to be enough for like the whole summer. And <laughs> we were like, oh, wow, we have a, real bike brand all, all <laughs> <Yeah>. of a sudden. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Well, yeah, that rolls perfectly into our first question. And these questions are kind of from us three as well as all of our listeners. And the first one was, what was your motivation to start a bike brand? Yeah, it, it was actually kind of an accident, I think. I mean, um, a lot of us have been, you know, into bikes since we were little kids. Like uh, my parents got me my first bike, you know, when I was like nine years old, I got put in like a kid's bike program. And, and I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, where Biking was not very common, especially mountain biking. Um, but I got into this kid's bike program as a kid, and I just got, like, fully addicted to it. Like, I wasn't very good at other sports, but I 
I could mountain bike pretty well. Like it just kind of worked for me. It clicked, got a job in a bike shop when I was 14. Uh, like as soon as I was old enough to work and just got obsessed with everything. I had this eBay business where I'd like take bikes from people and like take them all apart and, you know, sell all the individual parts and then, you know, give people commission. I started that when I was like 11 years old. And I think my parents were like terrified that I got a PayPal account back then. Cause it was, <laughs> you know, sending money over the internet was weird back in the day. Um, but I was just like really into bikes and I ended up just to fast forward a bit, I went to school in, uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and was able to like race mountain bikes all over. And being a kid from Alaska who hadn't biked all over the country, it was like, it was just eye opening. It was really cool. So I, I kind of was trying to figure out a way to, you know, keep on doing more things with bikes. So I started when I was in college, um, my junior year, I started my first business called Borealis. It was a carbon fiber fat bike brand. Um, and I started that thinking it would be a small hobby business and it kind of just took off and it went really really well that was kind of right place right time right because fat bikes really had a moment at some point there they had they still exist but for a while there they were they had a moment where they were all the rage they were all the rage and i got so ridiculously lucky with the timing we were the first company to launch a carbon fat bike and and uh we made a lightweight bike and it was you know at the time modern geometry you know still had like a 71 degree head angle which is laughable (laughs) now but uh we yeah very lucky timing and then um i ended up selling that business uh end of 2014 early 2015 and then i was kind of thinking you know this was super cool. I got to travel like all over the world to Asia and Europe and, and, you know, everywhere in the United States to like ride bikes and sell bikes. And I thought now I want to do this, but with the bikes that I want to ride, which was surprisingly not just fat bikes. I wanted to make some full suspension mountain bikes and gravel bikes and different, you know, titanium bikes. And so I figured let's, let's do it. Let's start this brand that, you know, and make the bikes that, that I wanted to ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. That's rad. I like that. Super rad. I like that a lot. It's a good story and makes a ton of sense. And yeah, it was kind of supposed good to be roots. a hobby from the beginning, and and it was for many years. And then you know when we launched Revel in 2019, it very quickly became not at all a you know a hobby business. It was it was it was real, real which thing. which we were hoping for. But I thought it would take many more years than it did. And within days, I mean, we started working with you guys you know, in 2019 and, and, and I was, you know, amazed, like, well, we get to work with worldwide cyclery and, and <laughs> you, you guys want to sell our bikes. And then it just, it just snowballed from there. And, and here we are now and we have bikes sold. And I think we have 36, uh, uh international distributors, uh, um, 36 different countries that we sell our bikes and, wow. um, all 50 States, uh, have dealers in them and we're, we're just getting started. So I'm excited for what's next. Yeah, that's rad. No, I mean, I was, super excited to hear about you guys initially because I'd always been sort of a Canfield Bikes fan prior and and was familiar with CBF, the suspension platform that you guys utilize. And yeah, I just love brands with good stories and and you guys having, you know, that suspension platform and the way you did it, the bikes you had, the talent you had on the team, all of that was just kind of immediately appealing to us. And um, yeah, I mean, I remember having a conversation with Liam about it years ago and I was like, oh, this is a brand that's going to go somewhere. We Let's get in this. Let's do this. Let's talk to these people. Let's do something. <laughs> I, I, so. I wish you told me that back in you know 2018 or 19 when we first started talking because I had a lot of sleepless nights in there as we were getting ready to launch this brand and I, you know, I, I was convinced. I loved the bikes. I met Chris Canfield back in 2015 and rode rode one of uh, the Canfield bikes and within like a hundred yards in the parking lot, I was convinced CBF was CBF was it. Like I knew I wanted yeah. to make a full suspension mountain bike company, but I didn't want to just use another suspension platform that was the same as everybody else. And so I was kind of taking my time 
And when I rode that CBF bike, I was like, cool, this is perfect. This is the best suspension system I've ever ridden. So I decided to license that from Chris Canfield, use it on a more modern carbon, uh, semi mainstream, if that's the right word, mountain bike. Um, but it was, it was a, t- it was an interesting few years getting, getting ready to launch. I mean, it took a long time and we, we tried to take our time and do it right. And when we were finally ready to launch, it just, I mean, that conversation that you and I had, Jeff was, mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my God, we get, you know, this is it. Like worldwide cycle, wants to sell our bikes. I mean, it was so, it was, it was sweet. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, we, we've always tried, I, I just really admire and enjoy the brands in the bike industry that are run by cool people trying to make great product. And cool enough, like a lot of the mountain bike industry has that. There's a number of brands that have people running the brands and who are developing the products that are actual riders and actually care. And I really enjoy that about the bike industry because there's still just passion filled in it. Sometimes there's the, the bad side of that is there's a lot of lack of business sense. But the good side of that is you have really good, really good products. You guys laugh because you know how true that is. Yeah. But uh, there's really good products because of it. And, uh, yeah, just really enjoyable people to be around. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of my favorite things in the and industry. That, that was sure. like the most fun part of starting Rebel Bikes was actually like for the first several years um, – the first five employees, we, we all lived together at my house in Carbondale, like for several years, because we tried to save money. You know, everything was going into the business. Bootstrap. Um, so we'd have our, you know, our our all company, all hands meetings were like around my dinner table at eleven at night. Oftentimes, <laughs> like with a, you know, maybe Skype with a, one of our Asian factories. You know, w- with all of us, and we'd drink beer, and our first prototypes would show up, and we built them in my kitchen. I mean, we were just all living together, to, and it, passion was yeah, definitely the right word. I mean, we wanted to make good bikes that we wanted so it, it yeah. was super fun that's super cool rewarding i love it liam you want to hit him with the next question we got lined up yes um what innovation do you think is left on the table for the coming years in the bike industry so we kind of have this thing where you know bikes have gotten to this point and they're kind of plateaued right yeah liam and i are slightly pessimistic yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> are you pessimistic, Jared, or are you optimistic? I think I am slightly optimistic. I think that the technology in mountain bikes is still relatively young, and there's still places to go. Mm. Cheers to that, Jared. Cheers. I agree. Thank you. Well, we think that they're already so good that it's going to be really incremental that they're getting any better by. So, I don't know. I'm curious to hear your take I think compared, compared to 10 think. years ago to now, absolutely. It's going to be incremental improvements. But I think as a whole, the bicycle industry is still very young and very juvenile. And we compare ourselves to, you know, motorcycles or the car industry. And we're just not there yet. I mean, mountain biking was invented only what, in the 70s. I mean, that's way later than... Didn't really even come into its own until the 90s. Yeah. Really. Totally. Yeah. yeah, we're we're young. We're all new to this mm-hmm. thing. Um, manufacturing companies are new to it. Global supply chain is new to it. Um my immediate thought with this question is what innovation, what innovation is left on the table. And right now for the foreseeable next couple of years, it's supply chain. I mean, it's getting these bikes. <laughs> I mean, we're all struggling yeah. with even being able, able to deliver mountain bikes right now. So I think, and companies are truly investing and innovating in supply chain management, which is really boring. No one wants to talk about that. I mean, we want to get cool bikes to go, you know, shred trails after work, but there's so much effort being put into that. So, so I think in the short term, it's going to be delivering products mm-hmm. beyond that i i think there's gonna be some pretty neat things in the manufacturing side of products and the materials um composites um things like that that we're just starting to see rebel bikes we're, we're dabbling uh in that quite a bit uh, we launched our fusion fiber wheels and i think there's going to be a lot more materials innovation 
Yeah, that's cool because there's definitely a lot of room to grow there in terms of sustainability and quality materials and all of that stuff. And hopefully cost eventually. I think it will take some time, but, but, you know, with different types of manufacturing in different places they're manufactured, uh, there is potential for costs to come down in the future. Mm -hmm. So maybe not like uh, innovation plateau in the riders sense, perhaps, but like an innovation plateau on the manufacturing side where like, you know, where like you said, costs come down and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and and to the to the point of on the riders, uh, I, you know, as parts get better and as bikes get better and suspension and shifting, like that's going to trickle down. So yeah. in a few years, maybe a bike that you know you, now costs ten thousand dollars, we're going to get that same ride quality at four or five thousand dollars, and that would be really cool. Totally, and it'll be made more sustainably. Yeah, I hope like, so. Just a better environmental impact. Basically. I, yeah, Less, we can hope absolutely. so. Absolutely. Yeah, we can hope so. Hmm. That's cool. So so, I mean, I guess. You know, Liam and I don't weren't really thinking about that in our heads. We were thinking about how much better is the bike going to ride and work. Do you think that that'll kind of be plateaued out, or it's very incremental? I mean, you're right. There, you know, to your point, you have a you have a much larger sort of perspective on this than we do. So your answers of better materials, more eco conscious, friendly materials, and, and manufacturing processes, supply chain management, and bikes that say the way a bike performs that costs ten thousand dollars now will actually perform and work that good at three thousand dollars. That's awesome. So you're right. I guess there is innovation there, but in it's, terms of like, will a ten thousand dollar bike ride significantly better and perform significantly better in five years from now, or it will, will it be as nearly the same? You know, maybe I'm like too optimistic, but since this is my career in life is like figuring out how to make a bike ride better. And I obsess over it all day long. I, I think it will, you know, even several, you know, a few years ago, we all thought, Oh, bikes are so good. Like mm-hmm. they, they can't get any better. I mean, look where we are now compared to five years ago with full suspension bikes. I remember selling, uh, 29 or full suspension bikes back in like 2008 at the bike shop I worked at. And we were, we were, we're all like, man, these are the best, like 29 or full <laughs> suspension bikes. If you try riding one of those now, like they're awful. You can't like, they're yeah, so true. inefficient. You can Unrideable. barely go uphill. You can barely turn corners and the bike industry, we, we figured it out. Like we can make an efficient pedaling 29 or 160, 170 bike that you can, that goes uphill like a rocket ship. So I, I would like to think it, it might be more incremental than it was 10 years ago, but I think we're going to see some pretty neat improvements. Yeah. Mm. All right. Cool. Well, I like your optimism. We can check back in, in 10 years and see if, see if we all still agree. Yeah. <laughs> see how that question aged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna exactly. <laughs> Maybe 14 years back to 2008. Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, a couple quick questions. If you were not in the bike industry, what industry would you be in? Ooh, that's like my nightmare to think about. So um, if, if Revel Bikes and Y-Cycles just all of a sudden didn't exist tomorrow, what would you do? Yeah. What uh, business would you start or where would you look for a job? Finance. I would be in New York City, Wall Street. No uh, way, working dude. For banks. I cannot see you in a suit, Adam. Breaking uh, in now world. I can't see me in a suit. No way. Uh, Why? Not, you just that just interests you. It's just an interesting the, area. That was my my you? path. I mean, I, I was always like really into math and numbers yeah. and um and uh when I went to college, you know, I had a plan that after sophomore year I'd go get an internship in New York City at some big bank and learn how hedge funds work. And wow. and now that's like I could not possibly imagine doing yeah. something. <laughs> that, something not that, that sounds like so boring and I, not nearly as fun as Revel Bikes. I get to wear flip-flops to work every day. Right? I don't think that would fly in, in a New York City office building. So, yeah, keep buying bikes from us so I don't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Jared, you want Rad. to read the, the next classic listener question? I'd love to. This listener says, I plan to keep my Ranger for the rest of my life. Are you prepared for that warranty period? 
<laughs> the fact that people want to buy a bike and keep it for the rest of their life makes me so happy. Like, that's absolutely awesome. Um, yeah, of course we're prepared. Like, if something goes wrong, we'll take care of the customer. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I love my Ranger, too. So totally support what this guy's saying. <laughs> I've, I've had my Ranger longer than I think I've ever had any bike. Which is insane. Which is insane. <laughs> and we'll, we'll tell how long it's been. That's what makes it more insane. Uh, a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> when I see questions like this, I'm like, no one keeps a bike more than a year or two for yeah. like a carbon yeah. suspension bike. But we're also like bike obsessed in yeah. the bike industry. Yeah, you know, you true. get we a are. new bike every year because we always want the latest and yeah. greatest. We're pretty insulated. I, I did keep my first Ranger for a full year. I sold it. I rode another bike for, I think, six weeks. And then I got my second Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> back to the best bike out there yeah well, i mean where we where we live and ride most often it's a pretty fantastic bike yeah so it's it's hard to stray away from it it is as the main as the main daily driver it's the go-to yep it is well so an, another thing another project you guys are working on you got a lot of things going on obviously with revel bikes and y cycles but revel wheels so you have USA-made fusion fiber rims, which launched in March of 2020, that are recyclable, whereas traditional carbon anything is not really recyclable. What's the quick scoop on those rims and that particular material? Yeah, I'm super excited about Revel Wheels. It was kind of like I, I've always wanted to have a bit of an environmental and sustainability focus with, with our business, and Revel Wheels was the first super tangible thing. I mean, we always, and we still are, are very conscious of our packaging and the materials we use and using recyclable uh, packaging. And, and now we've gotten all plastic out of our packaging except for zip ties. We're still working on, on a way to get rid of that. Um, <laughs> but Revel Wheels is the first thing where, hey, the actual product is made out of this material that is significantly more environmentally friendly, really from a manufacturing standpoint. Actually, most of the environmental benefits come from how the product's made. And then with the added benefit that the material itself can be recycled, um, really downcycled and turned into other products. It can't be turned into a rim again because the fibers get chipped up and it's short fibers instead of long fibers. Um, so we launched our first two models of those rims in March of 2020, a 30 millimeter 27.5 and 29er. We now have a 27 mil uh, rim, which pairs well with the Ranger, or like a down country style bike, and then a 23 millimeter gravel wheel. Um, the material is... It, it's a thermoplastic, so it's still carbon fiber, but instead of using epoxy as the bonding agent, it uses a nylon uh, material. And that uh, takes out all the toxic chemicals, uh, all sorts of stuff that's bad for the environment with um, like manufacturing waste. It also takes about 20 seconds to cure the rim in the mold instead of about 45 minutes, like a traditional carbon fiber uh, rim or bike would take. So it's much less energy that goes into creating the product and then any scrap from the manufacturing process, any broken, you know, wheels from the test lab, or if you do break a rim in the field, all of that uh, can be very easily recycled. Hmm. Sweet. And they ride really nice. They got this really like quiet, damped ride quality because there's none of that brittle epoxy in there. So that's kind of like, we yeah. actually forget to talk about how well they ride. Like we talk about how they're made, Yeah, but they're well, we, freaking awesome. We made awesome a whole YouTube video on them. 
<laughs> great. I'm glad you did because I get so focused on the manufacturing yeah. instead of like how it works in the field. Oh, it's funny. When we, when we made that video, I mean, I, I really think we've made a lot of various different videos on rims and wheels and especially carbon rims and wheels. And I think really only two have ever stood out to me. And it was, you know, your guys' rims because the material and the feel and cost and weight and all that stuff is just a unique, interesting story there. And the other ones were the Zip 30 Motos. Those actually had a pretty novel and unique design and ride feel. Man, all the rest of them were, uh, they're they're pretty similar. Yeah, Not pros and cons, differences here and there, but down the same path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're a little similar. They're not trying to be different. Really? Yeah. Well, maybe so. they want to be, but they're just not. <laughs> <laughs> to put it, I guess maybe that's not lightly to put it heavily. <laughs> Truth bomb. Yeah. Whoops. So, with the the rims being able to be recycled, or you said downcycled. Are there any plans to make other parts out of this uh, downcycled fusion fiber rims that are broken or scraps? Yeah, th- there actually is, is quite a bit. It's something we've been working on, and I will say throughout the pandemic, we've we've been a little bit delayed on 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 really pushing that because you know focusing on supply chain and all those boring things that no one likes to talk about. But um, th- there's already parts being made out of the recycled fusion fiber. Um, so we partnered with our manufacturer CSS Composites in um, in Gunnison, Utah. Uh, and they they developed this material, and we worked with them to develop the first rims. Uh, it, it was kind of funny. It was like six or eight months after I was talking with Joe, who who started the company out in Utah, and he was we were saying, yeah, well, you know, we'll design the rims this way. He developed the material in the process, and um, we worked together to make the rims. And about six or eight months after we were working on it, he said, you know, by the way, Adam, these are recyclable and i kind of was like oh like what like i was already sold on all this other cool stuff and how well they rode and how strong they were and the cool manufacturing process and made in america and now the recyclable like that's the cherry on top that's that's super cool uh and totally fits in with what we want to do with rebel bikes as a company so um right now and we actually we don't talk about this too much but a lot of the recycled material from the manufacturing process is being used for different parts of firearm manufacturing and some uh, helicopters and aerospace parts so we are looking into it for some bicycle products currently it's fairly cost prohibitive uh because of the type of steel you know high-end tool steel you need to make molds out of it um but we have a few pretty neat things in the works that I think in the next couple of years are going to make it much more possible for us to come out with more parts. Sweet. Nice. I love my uh, recycled tire levers, which was a joke, right? And then it ended up becoming more than a joke. It was pretty funny. Well, we wanted to make the recycled tire levers to show off that they, we weren't like blowing smoke. Like we're saying these are recyclable rims and they mm-hmm. actually are. So we decided to make the tire lever and we sold like so many in the first two hours after launching then we, and we i don't know we had like maybe 50 of them in stock and we were we got like a six month back order in a day <laughs> we're like all right we didn't think like it was more just to show off and then nice. and they're really cool it's a great tire lever um super strong <laughs> that actually is funny enough a problem with tire levers because if the plastic ones can break quite easily and yeah. then the metal core ones can damage the rims as soon as the rubber peels off them and so that's true it, it kind of makes sense for a. It was like way more practical lever. than we thought. We were like, we'll yeah. just make this to show off, and and it actually was a very practical, awesome product. Yeah, that's cool. What about brake levers? Oh, no one. Those aren't Ooh. like commonly replaceable or upgradable as I guess they used to be. Yeah. I always think of that because do you remember the? I think the brand was called Danger Boy. 
this was this like an old old time UK mountain bike brand, and they used to make these really rad sort of ergonomically shaped brake levers that you could really easily put on all these different model brakes. Wow. Did they have and, them in anodized purple though? Oh yeah. No, they did. They came in all the different colors, and they had sort of these really cool cutouts where your finger would sit in really nicely. And and no one does that anymore. I think that brand's long gone, but no one does that. But I always just we thought should, we should God, bring that, that back. Cool. That's a great idea. Yeah, I love anodized brake levers. That was like yeah, the story of my childhood on bikes. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was totally the story of a lot of people's Dang, childhood. Yeah, well, Liam just looked uh, these up in the article on Pink Bike was from 2005, Jeff. Yeah. So yeah. whoa, uh, you just aged yourself I, a little I bit, aged bro. Myself. I remember racing a. Uh, uh, a Norba National Downhill Race, which is also another way to age myself because that organization is gone so far. Long gone. Um, and and I in, in Brian Head, Utah, and I had those levers, and I crashed in like the main gnarly rock garden of of that race, and just completely botched and bent my Danger Boy lever, and I was so oh, bummed about it. I bet you were um, traumatized. I was I was traumatized. <laughs> they look sick though. I mean, aren't they cool? Yeah, yeah. Very I, don't, I don't really know much about that brand other than they made just these really cool, rad, unique CNC aluminum components and brake levers and stuff. Back in yeah, back when I was a teenager, I was racing it as a junior X when I was. So 16 or 17. Yeah, you could say they look uh, super ergonomic. Super ergonomic. But, wow. yeah, I mean, I was going to say they have places for two fingers, which, I mean, people aren't really doing. Yeah, no, don't need that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Brakes are a lot better than they were 20 <laughs> years I never ago. Used, I never used two fingers on there anyway, but just the, having your main finger on, like, the last little yeah. curvature part, oh, that was nice. That is nice. Okay. All right, well, we'll add that to the list of fusion fiber recycled parts. <laughs> cool, that I'll take a royalty make. on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's rad. Fusion fiber. All right. We will do a quick word from maybe our sponsor, maybe not. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hello, friends. Jeff again. I just wanted to quickly say, if you're enjoying this podcast or any of the Worldwide Cyclery mountain bike content, we would genuinely appreciate if you would check out Kettle Mountain. That is an outdoor adventure apparel brand that myself and our crew here are working on really hard, and I've been crafting apparel for the last few years. It's kind of a new venture we're really having fun with, and we would love if you would check it out. Also, if you use the discount code PODCAST, the first 10 people to use that code will get $100 off of their first order, which means you can pretty much get some rad stuff for free. Check it out, ketlmtn.com. Thanks. And now, back to the show. All right. Are you ready for this next question, Adam? Oh, I'm ready. All right. So Asian manufacturing is prominent in the bicycle industry, and not everyone knows why or understands the whole picture. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah. I'd love to. Actually, it, I'd say one of my favorite parts of starting a few bike companies now has been the whole Asian manufacturing side of things. Like, hmm. it's this whole different world across the globe, and they make, I mean, everything that we own is made in Asia. Like, yeah, just about. Just about everything that we use, our phones, everything is made over there. And so the first time I went to China to visit a manufacturing company, I was just like a kid on Christmas, like just blown away. Um, I think I've been there now 27 times and all that was before COVID because for the last two years, we haven't been able to, to travel to Asia. So we've gotten really good at video calls and things like that. But um, we do make all of our bikes in either China or Vietnam. And I like to say we're proudly manufactured in China. I think there's this whole thing in the bike world and, and really in all consumer products where it's almost like you don't you don't want to talk about it like oh it's made in China but we don't want to admit that mm-hmm. and the thing is China makes the best carbon fiber 
bikes in the world. Like yeah. hands down, there is no debate. They've been doing it longer than anybody else. They have more of a skilled workforce. It's a, it's a skilled labor for the most part. Uh, there's a few very good factories and they're all in China. And so I, I've really enjoyed creating relationships with different uh, people and factories and partners over there and kind of working with them to develop products. It's, and it, it's something that isn't talked about too much, but it's just this massive important part of how all bikes are made. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think one of the stigmas that is often misconstrued is people always think like, oh, what's, what's this labor like? What's what's going on over there? Why is it so cheap? And I don't know. I mean, the more I've learned about it and experienced it, it's really because of this amazing level of efficiency and just manufacturing expertise. It's not child labor. No. <laughs> yeah, I, Which, I, I get that yeah. a lot. People are like, when I go to China, they're like, oh, you're, you're a horrible person. And I'm like, well, one, everything's made in China. Two, it, it's really not horrible at yeah. all by yeah, any means. Totally. Um, the main, one of the main factories we work with actually has a full organic farm on the property. There's 800 workers there. Um, and every worker gets three vegetarian organic meals every day. Wow. Uh, they have better That's maternity cool. leave than we do here in the U.S., uh, by a significant amount. I mean, that's not saying much, but it's better than here in the U.S. Uh, they, it, it's it's so much better and more wholesome and feel good than than I think you know the media or the stigmas make it out to be. I mean, when we go there, it's you know it's hugs all around. We have big dinners every night. I mean, it's they're part of our company. I mean, they're we contract with these manufacturers, but it's the same as when I you know we have company Christmas parties. We have company parties with our manufacturers in China, and it's people are proud of their work. I mean, our contacts at all of our factories they'll send me you know articles on pink bike or worldwide or something like you know the second we see them like they they see it too like mm-hmm. they're proud of these bikes that their companies are creating and, and for me i don't care what country or race or you know who makes the product as long as they're really proud of it and treated well and our factories i mean we choose really good factories but they definitely live up to that like they're just as psyched on the bikes that we make as, yeah. as we are here in colorado yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to hear you say that who's been there 27 times because it's, it's not easy to do, but I always like to not judge things until I really have a very thorough understanding of the topic. And it's, uh, I think a mistake a lot of people fall into with Asian manufacturing of any product whatsoever is, you know, the, the people who are kind of the loudest about promoting the stigmas have never actually been there, yep. never actually been there and, and met these g- actual human beings and never been there and seen what's going on. And and so I don't know, I, w- with anything, I, I try to, uh, you know, keep my voice down until I really thoroughly understand it. And and uh, yeah, so it's, it's just cool to hear someone like you who's been there 27 times because, I mean, would you say 98% of everything in the bicycle industry is made in Asia? Oh, in Asia, absolutely. Yeah, between maybe between 99%. China and Vietnam, yeah, probably ninety nine. China, Vietnam, yeah. Taiwan, Myanmar, Cambodia, like everything's made over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of bad things there too. I mean, just like here in the United States, there's places to work that don't treat workers very well and yep. don't pay very well and don't let people go on bathroom breaks. That definitely exists in, in China. <laughs> I mean, like, um, there there are bad places there. There's bad places all over the world. Um, but for more skilled labor, for high end products um, and the factories that we choose. I mean, we chose our factories with a lot of that in mind. And I, yep. I would, I'm very proud of who we work with over there. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I got to get over there one of these days. You guys want to go to Asia? Sometime. I'd love to. Let's go. Let me know. Yeah. It's super fun. I would honestly love to. Let's have a party. I've, I've heard. Asia. They know how to party. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> I, I've heard that you have, you, it's, it's, uh, it's customary to, you have to just drink and drink and oh, drink. Yeah. And there's this, I mean, I'm honestly scared. Oh, 
<laughs> you should you should be. It's I mean because people have told me they've gone there and tried. You know they're they're having fun. They're being nice and and they just cannot out drink the people there. No and they way. Just, oh yeah. What? Could not I've be heard more these true. stories. Could I've not. heard these stories more about that in in Asia than I've heard them about Germany and Ireland. Wow! Like more people that I've talked to have been well, there and been like, "Dude, I've I ended up blacked out." You told me a previous story that you were there at a factory and some other people from another country were there at a factory, and <laughs> you guys drank them under the table, and those people were not not in a good that, spot. Yep, yep. That's, See, that's a very to me. true I'm not that story. In doing any of these that's things. It's, it's, so before I went to. China for the first time, several people told me the same thing. And they said, yeah, for business in China, it's very formal and there's, there's all these customs and you need to be very respectful and, that, and, and you need to drink mm-hmm. a lot. And I thought, no, no, this is the bike world. You know, we're going to go over there and <laughs> yeah, there won't we're be any of that. We're, 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 we're not going to overdrink. Yeah, we're yeah. We, do we don't like day. binge drinking. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, I, I will say the first time I went to China, I was uh, a senior in college and like most of us in college, I, I – was pretty good at drinking at the, at the time. You were well, used to well, it. Well, I, I, was, I was used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I thought I'd go to China and no, there'd be none of that, you know, traditional Chinese business culture. And, and I could not have been more wrong. I mean, <laughs> it, it, part of getting to know these people, and they'll say it, they'll be very direct about it. You, you know, you have this big meeting all day and you tour these factories and you see how things are made. And being a bike geek, it was like the coolest thing in the world the first time I went there. And then it's dinner time, and they'll just say to you, we're going to make you throw up or <laughs> we're going to get, we're going to get you more drunk than you've ever been before. And you're like, yeah, like, uh, no, okay. that's not going to happen. Like I'm, I'm pretty good at this. They were absolutely right. Oh <laughs> and See, if you, why I'm scared. Yeah. Don't laugh Watch at me. out. <laughs> well, the, the practice. Yeah. We, we could have a whole podcast just about Chinese drinking stories. Um, yeah. th- there's this special kind of liquor called Baijiao. It's a, it's a rice-based liquor, and that's what they like to drink over there. And they know that Americans just hate it, and it's kind of this, like, <laughs> source of pride for them to make you drink this stuff. And so, of course, like, you know, it, it's how we get to know each other. You have a big dinner and, and drink. And so I've, I've always brought bottles of Baijiao back, and people drink it at the office, and they'll have, like, half a sip and say, like, you know, this is the worst tasting liquid on, on the planet. And I'm like, yeah, wait till you, you're forced to drink a whole bottle of that. And then you go to work at 8 a.m. the next day to go, so you gotta make these bikes. And that just sounds so brutal. It's a crazy part of the culture, but it's honestly like, I, I've always loved traveling. Like as, as, you know, as soon as I could, I, you know, I'd save up all my money to like go travel to different places and see different cultures. Mm-hmm. And so to, as part of my job, I get to go see, you know, China and Taiwan and Vietnam and, you know, meet people and experience, you know, one, how things are manufactured, but two, just how different people think. And that's been w- one of the coolest things for me. I mean, it's just so different than here. And yet everything here in America is made there. It all comes from this place. So yeah. it's really fun. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thanks for shedding some light on that because it, it is one of those things that so much of the bike industry, it it's so it's all manufactured over there. And, and a lot of us have never been over there and don't really know what's going on. And there's stigmas and bad information and good information. And I don't know, it's hard to, hard to know about it. But when you talk to someone who, you know, has a bike company, who's transparent about it, who's been there several dozen times, it's, it's cool to just learn more about that. And it, yeah, they're, they're good at what they do. It. I mean, they, they're proud of their work and we have really good bikes and a lot of brands have really good bikes that are all made in different countries. And I think at the end of the day, that's that's pretty cool. It shouldn't matter what country it's made in as long as it's yeah, good. Yeah, I'm a believer in that totally. too. It is amazing how much abuse modern-day bikes take and how lightweight they are, and they just actually hold up pretty yeah. good for the most part. Yeah. Speaking of which, part. I do have a question on that. 
What do you think in terms of a percentage of – so let's talk high-end mountain bikes. So let's say carbon full, – full, full suspension carbon mountain bike frames that have a retail value of above two grand, right? So like every nice one. What do you think the percentage of them is that break? Not, not, a, not like a crash situation but just genuinely have a manufacturing defect. So the numbers that I've heard, and I've only heard them, there's no one will publish or share specific Yeah, because it's like literally every company's private that would have any of this data, and they're not sharing it with each other. Exactly, so. yeah. The numbers I've heard in you know, talking with some manufacturers in China that make bikes for a lot of brands is that their goal is, is a 2% warranty rate. Now, that might mean, you know, warranty can mean a lot of different things. That can mean some small issue like a, something out of tolerance, and there's some creaking, or it could be, you know, an exploded frame from mm-hmm. hitting a drop. Um, but 2% is a number that I've heard as being an acceptable, reasonable industry target, which if you think about it at the end of the, end of the day is kind of a lot. I mean, that's one in 50, you know, that's, that's a good chance you're going to get a bike that might have a problem. So of course our goal is to improve on that and beat that. And I'm proud to say we, we do. I thought um, that was a little, <laughs> well, <it's> one, <laughs> I guess if you say 2% seems like not that many, but one in 50, maybe one in 50. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Depends. Some people ride their bikes really hard, and some it's people a matter don't. of opinion at that point. Yeah, I would and, say that's pretty yeah. average. I mean, you have a pretty good like selection of riders that, you know, like you said, some are smashing and some are not. Yep. I mean, not everybody's gonna be full send. If everybody was, that number would be probably pretty high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be higher, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, on the riders. So thankfully, not everybody is like uh, an insane downhill cup like World Cup rider. You know. Yeah. And it's actually interesting how it's very geographical based too. like the UK and Scandinavia has a much higher warranty rate for really? bicycles mm-hmm. than America. It's very interesting. Um, or, or Asia. Weather? I, it might more be the weather, the you know, terrain. like it's funny, like when we sell bikes in England, everyone puts 200 millimeter rotors on it, no matter what bike it is, 200 yeah. millimeter rotors. Maybe it's the terrain, maybe it's that it's muddy, maybe, you know, the average, you know, rider weight is, is higher than you know, in a different country. Um, but it's pretty like well known amongst the Asian manufacturers that, Oh, if this bike's going to, you know, whatever place, the war- warranty rates are different in different uh, parts. Of the yeah. World. I was going to say, is there like a rate that, you know, of like in certain geographical areas where it is higher in those areas? Like what country is breaking the most bikes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a fun, well, we should, we should do a science project it. on that and yeah. dig in. That'd be fascinating. Yeah. It, Who it, charges it, the hardest. It would be cool if there was independent re- – like if, if the bike industry was big enough that there were independent research firms that were trying to find out this data and there was some you know, independent research firm that was going to every single privately owned bicycle brand, which is basically all of them, and asking them anonymously, what are your warranty rates on bikes of this price point, that price point, this material? That would be really cool. Let's put that on a 10-year plan to figure out how to do that. <laughs> yeah. It would be fascinating. I mean it's an independent research firm. You just have to have someone that's funding it and it's then they do get the research and then they sell it to these brands and yada, yada. And I don't know. It kind of works. Even in the outdoor apparel industry, like the NPD group, I think that's like would be considered an independent research group that's doing yeah. a lot of that stuff. Sort they, they of do, exists, they do some but in not the bike world, but very little. Yeah, not to that extent to where there's you know data at your fingertips. They're really interesting that. stuff. They're how, really how many bikes stuff. break? Yeah, that's... how many bikes break? How many dropper posts don't go all the way to the top? Ooh, you don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> More than two percent, yeah, for sure. For well, sure. Now it's well, it's still not two percent, but it's better than it ever was. That's true. Way better than a few years yeah. ago. That yeah. dropper posts were, the, I think, the last thing that were in the limelight of being just a a high percentage of warranty. 
Yeah. I mean, when they came out, it was like, yeah, I got to have one. And then it was like, oh, have this service broken. <laughs> <laughs> but that goes back to, you know, what innovation are we going to see in, in, in the future and in 10 years from now? Yeah. I mean, even two or three years ago, dropper posts, they, Not, like, they yeah. weren't very good. Yeah, yeah. they weren't very good. Reliability will be an innovation. Reliability. Yeah. And cost. Yeah. Reliability, yeah. cost, and manufacturing sustainability. Those yeah. are our innovations we have to look forward right, to. We'll Jared, quote us on that. Jared can only afford one dropper post. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's a really smart move, though. I think you got it figured out. Thank you. I think so, <laughs> For too. access is pretty sweet. Yeah. And swap droppers all over. It totally is. But, I mean, yeah. What, like, when can I get a 2018 transfer post for, like, 100 bucks? Like, a couple years down the road? they got to still have the tooling for that stuff. Yeah, true. Like somebody out there has that tooling. They're like, hey, I'll buy that off you. And they're making transfers right now. Right? Maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's maybe more complicated. Maybe that's. (laughs) We we could dive in deep there. Maybe that's owned by Fox. And so they're not going to just, they're going to sell that to someone. Someone's just going to make it. They're using it for the SLs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) Oh, the SLs. Yeah. (laughs) But those are legit. Just saying. Yeah. Well, speaking of warranty rates on carbon stuff, uh, rolls into the next question. Sort of. Do you think it? Would, do you think it's better on carbon bikes than aluminum bikes? I have better or worse? very little experience with aluminum bikes. I have a lot of experience with titanium and some other materials. Um, I don't know. I've heard the same numbers, but I, I don't. We don't make aluminum bikes. Yeah. What kind of like is a typical warranty claim on a titanium bike because I have never seen one. If I'm honest, very, 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 yeah, I've never even heard very, of one very breaking. little. Right? They used to a lot more. Like some of the bikes, you know, titanium bikes that were trying to be super lightweight, you know, road race Tour de France bikes. Mm-hmm. They made them too thin, mm-hmm. and welds would crack. Now, I mean, the the Y cycle titanium bikes we make, they they don't break. Nice. I mean, we're not trying to make the lightest bikes out there. Yeah, very rare. Nice. There's always some level of manufacturing defect, you know, one in a thousand, some right. issue might come up. Super rare. Nice. Hmm. I figured, I feel like titanium is pretty durable as material in itself, so. Yeah, you get a titanium bike to have forever. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Does Revel have any plans to make alloy bikes? Hmm. Which, which kind of rolls into a larger question of what do you see sort of the breadth of bikes with the Revel brand on them looking like in five to ten years yeah i mean are you gonna make lower end alloy bikes to hit different price points or are you gonna just hit all the little different niches Whole yeah i mean we, what we kind of say is is um yeah i won't be too specific but oh, we say you know we want to make the bikes that we want to ride and for a lot of us we like to ride a lot of different kinds of bikes so we you know we have gra- titanium gravel bikes and titanium hardtails for y cycles and then all you know four models of full suspension bikes now a carbon gravel bike so the goal, you know, I look at a brand like, you know, I think Santa Cruz has done a really good job. Like their lineup, well, now it's a lot bigger um, with a lot more e-bikes. But a few years ago, their lineup was kind of everything from gravel bikes to like World Cup downhill bikes. And I kind of look at that and and, and I sort of see Revel going there. You know, if, yeah. if we can do a bike and we think we can do it a little better, more unique than some other brands, you know, then and we want it, then we're going to make it. So, um, but we're not going to, you know be like a trekker specializer giant just make every single possible bike out there because there's market share like that's not at yeah. all what we want to do um the alloy bike thing's kind of funny we we 
um, actually have a few alloy hardtails in our building that were some frames that I made a few years ago. Um, I, I got a little bit overly zealous when I was in the process of starting Revel, and I already had Y-Cycles, and we were a total startup company with all of us like living in the same house together. And I started working on making this aluminum line of bikes, too, and found like one of the best factories in the world in Taiwan to make these aluminum bikes. Got a bunch of prototypes, and then I was like, well, we're, we got way too much going on, so let's, let's pump the brakes on that project. Um, but I started working on some, and now they're going to get turned into, like, you know, bar, bar bikes for the, for the shop. Um, but maybe, maybe we will make some aluminum bikes at, at some point. I think there's a lot to be said for better price point, um, high-performing bikes in the yeah, future. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. And for those who don't know, what is a bar bike, Adam? <laughs> well... Sometimes you after guys work, smirk over here because you both have them. I know you both have them. <laughs> yes, we do. You know when when you want to go get a drink at the bar after work, you don't always want to. Oh, that ride bar. your that bar. $10, I was thinking $10. like the bar exam, like what lawyers take. It's slightly different. Slightly it's, different. it's more okay. about. Um, beers. It's actually, harder to get a bar bike than it is to pass the bar exam. <laughs> so, at least have a cool one. Uh-huh. Please have a cool one. It's got Having a cool, a cool bar bike is like a sign of pride. Oh, like yeah. oh, you, yeah. you need it needs to be old and, and kind of not very nice, but at the not same time, not too worried like, about it being stolen. Really though. nice, yeah. like anodized bolts on yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I, I have some first gen white industries hubs oh. on my bar bike. That's perfect with a Rasta salsa skewer. Oh, now I'm really jealous. <laughs> yeah, those were cool. Those Rasta salsa skewers. That's why I have sweet. <laughs> perfect application bar bike. Actually, Rebel Bikes is only going to make bar bikes in the future. We're <laughs> That's the future of the company. <laughs> It's my next bike. That would actually be a plausible business plan of having a company that's just called Bar Bikes, and that's all you made was right. kind of cool looking aluminum bikes that wow. were two hundred fifty dollars. We're gonna have meant to, to just ride to the bar. <laughs> Cut this whole part out of the podcast. Yeah. And let's let's yeah. sign some papers. Don't that sounds, anyone, that sounds great. <laughs> that would actually work really well. That would, it would awesome. probably work really well. Someone does that, please. Uh, that's your, give us, that's give your second something. royalty. Please give us some royalties, please. Yeah. Thank you. So you're making royalty. money on this podcast. Yeah, yep. I know. Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> we should do more of these. Uh, All right, Adam. Why have you chosen the geometry you have for Rebel Bikes? Why not be more extreme? This was from a listener question. I love this question. We, we try to... From the beginning, I wanted Rebel Bikes to you know make the bikes we want and only make something if we think we can you know do it a little bit better than some other companies and 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 not just copy what everyone else is doing out there. And that's where you know CBF came into play and some neat stuff with carbon fiber and you know fusion fiber on the wheels. Uh, the geometry is like a huge. I mean, that's kind of the main part of any mountain bike. Uh, I think there's so much out there in the bicycle media and on you know commenters on Pink Bike and things like that where you know. It would seem that everyone needs like a 63 degree head angle, you know, super long slack, you know, short chain stay bike. And the reality is for most of us, that's not what is ideal. Most of us don't race World Cup downhill and we ride our bike uphill or we ride it on flat trails and we ride it downhill. And so we chose the geometry for all of our bikes very specifically. And some people have said, oh, it's not, you know, it's not, you know, modern in quotes or, or as modern as some other bikes. And you know, in my perfect world, there would be no geometry charts on any bicycle manufacturer website. And there would be really high quality reviews and content from, you know, places like Worldwide and Pink Bike and all these bike magazines. And consumers could test ride every single bike and never look at the numbers. Just go test ride it and see what you like. And I think it's easy for people to say, oh, 
I need a 64 degree head angle. Well, what does that actually mean? You have to think about wheel size, tire size, tire pressure, your offset, um, your fork length. I mean, there's so many factors that go into how the front end of that bike handles and head angle is, is just one of so many factors. Um, same with reach. Well, reach is directly related to seat angle. Um, you know, where's your body position on the bike? Uh, I think geometry, one of it is about how the bike handles it, handles terrain. Two is your your body positioning. And you need to balance both of those things and balance it for the type of terrain you're in. If you're going uphill all the time, if you're on, you know, if you're not in Colorado or, or Utah where we ride a lot where it's steep up and steep down, but you're in, you know, flatter terrain, like where I grew up in Alaska, it was more, you know, tight trees. Um, I think just kind of thinking of the big picture and where most people ride the bikes and where we want to ride the bikes, we chose geometry numbers that that we thought were good. And I think, you know, a lot of consumers agree with us. We've got yeah. a lot of pretty good reviews. So, yeah. Yeah, we definitely agree. I mean, I, I, I certainly have said that many times when people have asked me about Revels and, oh, how do they ride? And what about this? And what about that? And, you know, I, I think the vast majority of people that I see riding bikes and are curious about getting a new bike do get end up, they end up in this decision paralysis where they probably read more than they should have read <laughs> and, they, and they got a little confused and, you know, they're, they're, they're reading sort of the thoughts and comments of, I don't know, former downhill racers or 18 year old kids that are <laughs> literally slope style pros. And it's like, well, they're not really riding the same way you're riding that bike. And they have preferences that are very different than yours. And a lot of this is personal preference. And a lot of it really boils back down to just, please just stop looking at all these numbers and go test things, <laughs> go test um, things, go ride bikes and, and see what works for you. And, and don't get confused. Cause yeah, I mean, everyone rides at a different pace and then therefore they have different preferences and different terrain and it does get kind of complex so i can certainly see why people end up with decision paralysis but i don't know that's why it's nice to demo bikes whenever in a you perfect can. world if you're looking to buy a new bike if people can go to you know sedona bike fest or moab outer bike or oh, yeah. you know mm-hmm. there's all these events coming back now there a lot of them weren't around during covid years but now they're all back and you can go and i usually say you know find a 20 minute test loop go ride by yourself and ride you know eight different bikes and just see what they feel like and forget about yep. looking at numbers and geometry charts and go ride them. And, and we've had so much good luck at events. We were just at the Sedona bike fest a couple of weeks ago. And we, you know, it's like the biggest ego boost of all time. Like we're sitting there showing off our new rail two nine and we have like hundreds of people demoing these bikes and everybody comes back and they're like, this is the best bike I've ever ridden. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's just like the most stoke you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, but those are really good events for yeah, yeah. how bikes actually ride instead of just looking at numbers. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I think also, like, a lot of people get caught up in um, just, like, listening to what other people say about the bike, right? Like, oh, well, he said this bike is too long, too slack. And and it's like, well, no, don't listen to that person. Like, go ride it, like yeah. what you said. Like, go and experience it and then form your own opinion. Because unless you, like, 100% trust what that person's saying and, like, you have similar, very similar opinions on bikes. But, like... So many, so much of the time people just read comments or they see something and then they're like, they just absorb that. And then that's their opinion, you know, could not agree more. Yeah. Yeah. Demo bikes. Demo <laughs> go, bike. go try all just of go them. Ride, ride, bikes. ride more bikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And part bikes. of it is, is just time, right? It just takes you a while to figure this stuff out. I told you earlier today, that story of my friend, Matt, who 
when he got into mountain bikes, he's he's all stoked, and he he's got it. He got like two different bikes, and he kind of just bought. I don't know where it, where his buying decisions were based, in at that point, just he's just pumped on getting in high end mountain bike and riding. And then from there, he's getting more and more into the industry, asking more questions, reading more articles, just really diving in, just falling in love with the sport. And then he's he's asking me, oh, what bike do I get next? And and he's like, oh, I really want to get this Mondraker because it's so long and so slack. And I was trying to explain to him, I was like, dude, those are great bikes. However. I've ridden with you. You're my friend. Um, your speed and where you're riding, that's not going to be the right bike for you. Uh, and, and I try to talk him just in just different geometry because I knew his skill level and, and sort of what he was looking for and what he even liked in a bike and where his strengths and weaknesses were as a rider. And you're like, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I have a <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah, good yeah, amount yeah, of experience yeah. with this. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and so, so, of course, he did not listen to my, my recommendation and he got the Mondraker. And uh, in three months, he's like, it's just too big, dude. Like, I can't manage this thing. It feels so large. I, like, can't – I can't get the – I can't do a cutty. I couldn't really do one before, but I definitely can't do one now. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I know. Man, I told you all. He's like, oh, you're right. You're right. Oh, no. You know, and then it, it was so funny. But, of course, then, you know, I, I, I talked to him. I'm like, dude, try Rebel. Like, just ride one. Ride a few different bikes in our stores because he lives closer to our Pennsylvania store where we have, I think, four different brands. And he rode every – demoed every single one. And then he, and he right. settled on the Rebel, and he's, like, been hooked on Rebels ever since. So that, I love um, hearing that. That's, yeah. That's freaking awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So it's, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's definitely one of those things that, and it takes time. Sometimes you got to you gotta learn by yourself and, and do what he did and spend a lot of different money on bikes and buy and sell <laughs> we, stuff. We can all realize, be a little like, stubborn at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, it's yeah. a pretty common conversation in our office amongst our product development team of, you know, oh, should we do a 78-degree seat angle or, you know, whatever the, the you know popular numbers are of the day and, and we just keep coming back to let's make what we want and we're going to be confident in what we want and whether it's what pink bike commenters want or not like we we ride bikes all the time like our business is based in carbondale and i moved it there purely because it's like mountain bike mecca like yeah it's awesome so we're just gonna make what we want and yep i think a lot of other people probably want that too yeah that's cool and on on the topic of some sort of that just geometry and bike performance and suspension designs and all of that. Um, one of my close friends, Nico Mullally, who he grew up racing with, he is now doing this whole frameworks project where he's having his, he designed his own frames. He's racing them. We've talked about it. We had him on, was the last podcast he was on, right? And, uh, yeah. So listen to that podcast and also his YouTube channel. So he's really trying to document his process of designing his own bike and testing different geo and what he's doing. And it's, it's fascinating to watch and understand. And I think he's doing a pretty good job at, I think he gets lost certain times, but he's doing a good job at explaining it to the common man who just really loves this stuff. But at the same time, uh, kind of making it clear as some ways or another, but should be assumed he's a world cup downhill racer, like literally in the top 100 of the fastest human beings that could ever ride a bike down a hill in the world at this current moment. And, and that is extremely different than the pace that 99% of other people <laughs> ride. And, and therefore you need very different suspension, geo tire pressure, suspension setup. All these different things are so different when you ride a bike at that pace with that skill level versus what just normal mass everyday mountain bikers are trying to do and enjoy on their bike. I think what he's doing is so cool for exactly that reason. Like yeah. the world cup downhill racer is not the same as the rest of us as much as, much as I want to yeah, think not I even can do that. Close. I'm not even close. Yeah. And the bikes that we need are generally different than what they mm-hmm. need. So what he's doing makes so much sense. 
Yeah. And that's something too, you, you just learn as you're in the industry more and you ride with guys like that. Or if, you know, you can't really ride with them for very long, but you can watch them, (laughs) you know, from, from the sidelines, watch them ride away from you. And then you start realizing that, you know, how that bike reacts when you hit certain things on certain tracks at certain speeds. And yeah, it's cool, but it's a really interesting thing. I think what he's doing, because it's really educational to people who you know, really interested in bike geometry and suspension platforms and all of that. But, um, yeah, just, just to learn more about it from someone who explains it really well. Nico's just really well-spoken and he's really honest and transparent about the whole project. So, yeah. I I think it's similar to like what, when we were talking earlier about Asian manufacturing, like until you've, you know, gone there and seen it, like it's good to hold off judgment. Like until you've ridden a bike with a 63 degree head angle and one with a 66 degree head angle, like it's better to hold off judgment until you go ride that yourself because everyone has their own individual experiences and the more you can, you know, get out to a demo event, I'll like keep like hammering that in as much as possible, like like trying different things. And, and it's the only way you can figure it all out. And as you're saying, it's a whole package, right? Like every single bit of geometry lends itself to how it rides along with the suspension platform. So like you don't just want to make a bike. Oh, this bike will be awesome. If it just has a 62 degree head tubing, I'm like, uh, probably won't because there's a lot of engineers designing that whole bike for that whole package. And just because it, you know, might have a steeper head tube angle than what, you know, another bike next to it has doesn't mean it's going to ride any worse. Totally. I think a common one that I see a lot is like on whether it's our bikes or any brand of bikes is like, oh, I hit my pedals a lot on that bike. You know, it's the bottom bracket's too low. And it's like, well, there's like several factors beyond the bottom bracket that have much more of an impact, like your shock pressure, a few PSI difference in your Mm -hmm. shock pressure you know, and therefore how much sag you're at has way more of an impact than, you know, if you look at BB drops on a lot of full suspension bikes, most brands are within a few millimeters. They're pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, close. So just, yeah, little things like that. It's like, well, it might not be the bike. It might be the setup or it might be the shock. Totally. And, and I think setup is often overlooked. Um, you know, spending time dialing in your setup and learning how to set up suspension is going to make just about any brand of bike out there ride way better. Yeah, mm-hmm. Definitely. We have a whole YouTube video on that. Whoa. You did it, Liam. Why? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty extensive, too. Everybody should watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's helpful for sure. Well, all right, Adam. We've got a couple questions left. Jared, hit him with them. Adam, how – oh, excuse me, wrong question. <laughs> Do you think bike prices are getting too high? Oh, I mean, I think that's something that – we can all agree on that. Yes, absolutely. Bike prices are getting too high. And the last two years have been really, really bad for trying to get bike prices lower. We actually, we've done two price increases for Revel during the pandemic. And both of them were like some of the most stressful things we've done in the office, because obviously we're running a business and we want to run a really successful business. But at the end of the day, like everybody in our building is a diehard, like bike fan. We all want to buy our own bikes. And so the Price increases we did were, were were not very fun, but we were getting hit with all these increases from every manufacturer. We're still getting them. I mean, once every week or two weeks, we'll get a letter from one of our vendors saying, surprise, all your prices are going up by 3% or 5% or 13%, you know, tomorrow. And we're like, well, wait a second, like, we've had all this stuff on order. Like, you're just going to raise these prices tomorrow? Like, it, it's horrible. So, um, you know, our hands are pretty tied in that. And I think we were a bit more conservative on the increases. But yeah, I, I hope when all this supply chain stuff settles down and hopefully the world gets back to normal at some point um and 
in the in the long run, if you know different manufacturing techniques can help uh, improve efficiencies, I, I, I truly hope we could lower prices at some point. And I hope all bike companies can. We should make it a lot more attainable for more people. Yeah, well, totally. So two things for clarity there. When you say vendors, you're talking about all the different components that make up a complete Rebel bike. Totally. Tires, wheels, handlebars, all the components, you know, that manufacture products in Asia, mm-hmm. you know, they're all hitting, getting hit with their own raw material price increases, carbon fiber, aluminum, you know, rubber to make tires. All those prices were have been going up for the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing there for clarity is, so us as a retailer, we deal with over 150 brands and I think every single one of them, whether it's complete bikes or components, they've all raised their prices and none of them are happy about it. Obviously nobody really wanted to do that, but yeah, I mean, COVID affected the bike industry so much and so all these supply chain things and now we have inflation to deal with. And yeah, I mean, it's just an unfortunate and, thing, but it's not 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 just you guys. It's not just, it's just us. Just, just for clarity's sake, <laughs> yeah. literally every single yeah. bike brand we know of has done that, um, and component brand. It's just an unfortunate nature of you know what's happened. And I think a common misconception is like, oh, there's way more demand, so companies can charge more for their products. And that yeah, at least not, I don't think that's why for us like that. that has nothing to do with yeah. it. It's like, well, prices went up, and and so unfortunately that has to happen. And, and a lot of us, you know, kind of absorbed it and dealt with it for you know a long mm-hmm. time and it kind of you know that's that's what happens in business but that's like the not so fun part of part of business sometimes so i think it'll get better and, and eventually yeah maybe we'll see from 2024 to 2028 will be the <laughs> bikes will be slightly cheaper bikes will come down in price yes yep. see them just wait it out a couple years <laughs> wait it out a couple years yeah. but then again maybe it won't yeah. Yeah. Inflation will probably catch up by then. Uh-oh. We're <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Optimism. Come on. Yeah, Let's be positive. Yeah. Optimism. Optimism. That's right. We're going to get such nice bikes in 2027. <laughs> so less money than yeah. now. Just just wait till then. Just oh, don't buy a new yeah. bike till then. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just take up some other sport that also had a bunch of price increases. Yeah. In the it turns out actually everything <laughs> yeah. did. Everything fun that has to do with going outside mm-hmm. got more expensive. Yep. Yeah, that's true. I don't honestly can't think of the top of my head anything that went down in price. Mm. Uh, nothing. No. Yeah. Maybe maybe masks? That's the first thing that I thought of. <laughs> like, but I, then again, I have no idea what those cost before this. Exactly. They, were, they, they probably were, went up. <laughs> they were a little cheaper than bikes anyway. To be yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can't think of anything. Yeah, unfortunately. Business gets in the way of bikes sometimes, yeah. but that's okay. The that's last, the right. last, uh, the last listener question. So a bunch of these come from we post on the Worldwide Cycler Instagram and ask for MTB podcast questions. And uh, and this this one that I the story I posted was very specific that hey we're we're recording the podcast. Adam Miller, the founder of Revel Bikes, is coming. What questions do you have for him? And this was the this was a question. Go ahead, Liam. I have a to- uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I have a Trek top fuel with a dual lockout. Can I install that on my Scott Spark? <laughs> Adam, that's what somebody wanted to ask you. Yeah, of all I'm, the things I'm, that I'm, someone could ask you specifically, uh, this was the question. This, this, this is my area of expertise. It's a good thing I flew all the way from Carbondale, Colorado to, to, to California so I could answer this question. You know, you you do you. Just whatever, whatever makes you happy. Just give Customize it a try. Your bike. That's my answer. Obviously, you should do it. More more cables, more lockouts. That try seems it. like a fun thing to, to try. So a lot of Adam's compatibility. You do you, boo-boo. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad I could help you out there with that one. I'm sorry we didn't have more, you know, compatibility questions for you. Um, that but, that you know. took 20 years in the bike industry for myself to come up with that answer. So thanks to all my experts. 
expertise. I hope oh, I help man. someone out. Compatibility. <laughs> we should have you on next time and just talk about compatibility stuff. I would love nothing more. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, props Props for the new bike coming with the SRAM UDH, by the way. Yes. Thank you. High fives yeah. all around. That's, yes. the, that's the universal derailleur hanger that should be on every new bike ever created from here on out, in my yes. opinion. And yeah, if we you don't use it, what are you doing as a bike brand? Like, yeah, good question. UDH is really cool. SRAM did a great job. Does that work on that. road bikes too? Our, our gravel bike has it actually. The oh, new yeah. Revel Rover Boom. gravel bike. Boom. So Boom. yes, universal. Well, that's still not a road bike. So you did, oh, it, you did it well. Now, now we can do a whole podcast on that <laughs> discussion right there. It's even. I want to like hardcore roadie roadie bikes. It's even on Keith, my ti- you know titanium gravel bike. There you go. Too much weight. So it's, it might not it's end up on too much weight. Have you felt one? They're plastic. <laughs> They're like twelve grams. <laughs> So it might not make it. What's Keith? What's your prediction on? Will it end up being on hardcore roadie bikes in the future? Anything that anybody's going to race, no. Oh, okay. He said anything that anyone's going to race, no. Huh. Day riding bikes, mm. time bikes. Yeah. So almost all bikes, but extremely high end, ultra lightweight road anything racing bikes, maybe on, not. You know, the Tour de France, no way. Maybe mm. we'll make a fusion right, fiber, so, super lightweight so, so, version. So Keith, <laughs> Keith says that the UDH will not make it on Tour de France race bikes ever. Mm. SRAM will prove it. <laughs> I'm, I'm right. going to see how this comment ages. Set a, <laughs> set we, a we calendar event for 2027 to, to follow up with Keith on that comment. <laughs> right. The SRAM road UDH. Either way, <laughs> I mean, who cares? This, this, this is not the road podcast. It's the mountain bike podcast. <laughs> so That's right. Yeah. Regardless, the SRAM Universal Derailleur Hanger is a fantastic invention, so I'm really happy to see that on your guys' new bike, and I'm sure I'll see it on. It's on a lot more new yeah. mountain bikes. Yeah. We'll probably continue to do it. So, well, that's cool. That's it. That's all. Thank you for listening this long in the podcast. If you're still listening, Jared. We love you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what we tell people. Wow. And and uh, any last words, Adam? I mean, I had a great time riding bikes with you guys today. It was really fun to... Cool. Pedal bikes and dry dirt and 80-degree weather. Yeah. So I'll be back. SoCal, man. Sweet. Thank you all for listening. We genuinely appreciate it. See you guys or listen to you guys, talk to you guys in the next one. Yeah. Used to YouTube videos. (laughs) Cheers. Love you. Cheers. Bye. Bye, Felicia. Bye.